passage we're going to be in is Mark chapter 10. So if you want to turn there to Mark chapter 10, verses 32, we're going to go through 45, kind of a long passage. So if you want to stand, go ahead. If not, uh, please just follow along. Uh, but we are going to, to read that passage. Starting in verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share and study your word together with this group of people. God, I trust that you have brought each person in this room here tonight, that you have a message to, to share with each and every one of us. And so I just ask now that by your Holy Spirit, that our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say. Not just open to hear, but open to respond. God, I trust that tonight for some of us, you're calling us to, to make some changes in the way that we're doing things. God, and so we just ask, we just want to be open, receptive. As we worship you in song, we now want to worship you as we study your word together. So we give you this time, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would give me clarity, uh, would bring uh, thoughts that you want to communicate to the forefront and everything else would be left out. So we thank you for this time, we give it to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I want to start with a quote from one of my favorite theologians. You may have heard of him. This is my son, Gray. We are all aware by now that last week was Valentine's Day. Either you did something, or you were reprimanded for not doing something, but either way, you know that the day was last week. Uh, that being the case, I got my wife a card. I usually do this, but this year was a little bit different. Like I said, for the last several weeks, God's been really just showing me some things, and so I wanted to give her a card where I was basically a, some confession of some things, needed to, to turn away some, repent from some things, and I wanted her to have it. So I wrote her this card, gave it to her, it was great, and then Sunday morning rolled around, and Gray found that card who was written, that was written for my wife. Uh, Gray is smart. For those of you who know him, he's really smart. <laughs> For his age, he reads and processes things really well. So he found the card, read it, and no sooner than he had finished reading it, he rushes off to find my wife, 
And when he finally finds her, he says, Mom, have you read this? Let's just hope all that stuff is true. It's okay. It's a gentle rebuke. Okay? It, start, it starts with me. So we all get a good laugh when we hear something like that. But I want to get serious for just a moment for a couple of reasons. One, kids are extremely insightful. If you have them, you know that. If you've already raised them, you've already been through that. Um, and um, I applaud you for that. And right or wrong, they just tell us how it is. My six-year-old son has been used by God probably more than any other person in my life to promote humility. (laughs) Whenever I think that I'm improving or doing better in an area, if I really want to know, all I need to do is just ask him how I'm doing. And he'll tell me where I'm falling short and the areas in my life that my walk doesn't match my talk. Uh, Painful at the time, but honestly, really helpful. But secondly, as, as I thought about that statement, it hit me that sometimes this is how we read the Bible. This is how we understand the gospel sometimes. This is how we understand the words of Jesus sometimes. We read passages and we say, yeah, I believe in that. However, our day-to-day life actually reflects more of my son's response. Like, we're just hoping all that stuff is true. But before we all get down on ourselves for not measuring up, we can be reassured that we are not the first ones in the history of mankind to have this struggle. Even those who were closest to Jesus as he walked the earth for the 33 years struggled to grasp who he really was and what that really meant for them, just as we do for us today. So my question for us tonight is, Are you in pursuit of knowing Jesus? And if you are, are you following his ways? Or while most of us probably would admit to it, are we trying to follow him our way? Let that sit for a little bit. While we tend to drift toward one extreme or the other as we answer that question, the truth is, in all reality, we're all probably somewhere in the middle of the process. Maybe you're here tonight or you're listening tonight and you don't know Jesus at all. Maybe you do know him, but only from a distance. You know who he is, you've you've prayed the prayer, you've asked him in your heart, but you're kind of on the sidelines watching from afar, giving your input here and there, but you're not really in active pursuit. You're just trying to hang on and, and hope all of this stuff is true because it sounds good. Maybe you know him and his ways, but you aren't passionately following them. You're claiming his name, but you're actually building your own kingdom and not his. Or maybe you are faithfully and obediently uh, obeying every single command that he has ever given. Careful now. The point is, we all start somewhere. And the question to ask for each of us is, are we going to stay there? Where are we at now and are we going to stay there? I believe that when we truly understand who Jesus is, it radically changes the way that we relate to him and the other people around us. Because the way of Jesus looks nothing like the way of the world. And following it doesn't give us an option to stay on the sidelines. 
as we're going to see. So to illustrate this point and talk about this, kind of unpack this, like I said, we're going to be uh, going through an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples as they were following him on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, you can also put a marker over in Matthew 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, because there's actually a parallel version of that story uh, in that book as well. But in the section right before our passage, uh, we actually read this tonight, but right before the part we're going to get into, Jesus gives the most detailed description in the book of Mark of what is in store for him. He tells them that when they get to Jerusalem, which is where they're headed, that he, the son of man, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles because they don't actually have the power to kill him they're going to hand him over to the Romans because they can actually do something about it, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So remember this slide, remember this verse, because we're going to come full circle at the end here. This is the setting for our study. This is just what, what he has communicated to his disciples, and we get to uh, verse 35. So the first part of our interaction is James and John coming to Jesus with a famous blank check request. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. If you've got small children, you've probably heard this question before. You know, how do we, how do we answer it? It probably depends on how the rest of our day went. But Jesus because of who he is, very graciously answers, very graciously and patiently answers them with really the perfect response to a question like this. What is it that you want me to do for you? He already knows, and from the next verse, we know that they already know. But he gives them a chance to define what it is that they're really seeking, because that's what Jesus does. He's patient with us as he gets to what's really going on in our lives. And to better understand their request and what they are seeking, you can go over to the passage in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, where their mother is actually there, and she's seen as making the request, and says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. So in Mark chapter 10, it uses in your glory. Matthew chapter 20 says in your kingdom. So to kind of understand this, in Jewish custom... According to commentator James Edwards, the place of highest honor was at the center of the company, followed by the right and left hands, respectively. So basically, they're saying, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom and you're number one, we're totally cool with you being number one, but we want to be number two and number three. Very humbly. If you're anything like me, we give the disciples a hard time. Because as the supposed leading followers of Jesus you shouldn't be asking such a thing. But here's the truth. As I've been finding right or wrong, they're actively, sincerely passionate and participating in the, in the mission as they see it. So they've got the whole thing wrong, but as they see it, they're not sitting on the sidelines. They're, they're in the game. They're actively involved. They believed in Jesus and his, and his supreme rule, even though they misunderstood it. So they made their request known. Some of us here tonight, and the only reason I know this is because I found myself in this situation, are unable to say that. For whatever reason it is, we aren't coming to Jesus with what we want. 
So there's two things I want to point out about that. Number one, in the book of James, in James 4.2, says you do not have because you do not ask God. So it may be that if what you want truly is something that is good, that we don't have it because we haven't asked. But what if what we want, what if we really want to ask God isn't in line with what his will is? Or maybe we aren't sure if it is, so we just play it safe and don't ask. As I've found more in my life, this has more to do with what we think God is like than what he's really like. Because Jesus' response when they ask this is, you don't know what you're asking. Again, very patiently and very graciously. And so he follows that up with two questions. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And can you be baptized with the same baptism? These really aren't phrases or sayings that we're super familiar with, but we go back to the Old Testament. And the cup, according to Donald English, in a number of Old Testament passages is about suffering and punishment, usually at God's hand. This suggests that what lies ahead for the Son of Man is to be full of woe. So again, they've got the end goal of what the kingdom of God looks like. They've misunderstood that. But from this metaphor of drinking the cup, they know that there's a cost involved. Secondly, can you be baptized with the same baptism? William Barclay in his commentary says, what he's saying is, can you bear to go through the terrible experience which I have to go through? Can you face being submerged in hatred and pain and death as I have to be? So these are two really heavy questions. And they've misunderstood what the kingdom actually is. They're thinking kingdom as in political, social thinking. They're thinking thrones. They're thinking places of power and ruling. And they understand the hard work and sacrifice, the cup and the baptism are required. But from what they know, this is what they've been looking forward to. Jesus is the Messiah. They fully believe he's going to set up, he's finally going to deliver them from the oppression that they're under. And so they're all in. They answer, we can. Confident, but misinformed. They're thinking ruling, being the king, telling this person to do that, put people in their place. Really, their desire is rooted in a desire for earthly power and glory. And so here's where Jesus starts to shift the conversation. His response is, again, very graciously, you all will. You all will drink the cup and be baptized. The irony is, uh, as we, we read and we learn about, James was the first of, of the apostles to be martyred, and John went, underwent extreme amounts of persecution. But the truth of the matter is, the exact and specific cup, as we're going to learn about, and the exact and specific baptism that Jesus was going to drink, it was impossible for them to do it. But Jesus responds, you all will. But these places, the places that you're asking for, to sit at my right and left, 
belong to those for whom they have been prepared. There will be someone on the right and left of him when he is in his glory, in his kingdom, but it's not going to look like they think it will. If we know the story, we know that when Jesus is actually in his glory, it'll be when he's on the cross. There's going to be somebody on his right and on his left, and they're not going to be any of the 12. The truth of the matter is that, as we will discover, no matter how much they want those places, they aren't his to give. And this is huge because just in his answer, he shows that in the kingdom of God, even he submits to the will of the Father. So going back a little bit to that section, what about if what you are asking is wrong or if you're unsure? We need to ask. If we're wrong in our request, if our request is off base from according to what his plan for our life is, we can know because of who he is that he will gently redirect our steps in our heart if necessary. Because that's who he is. Contrary to what we sometimes feel, every time we mess up, he's not just going to fly off the handle and just go off on us. God does get angry, but it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, when, when he does, it's very intentional. But for the most part, he's extremely patient and gracious. And so my question for me and my question for you, and for me growing up, this was just something I was not comfortable with asking. But I really think that as we walk with Jesus, as we, as we passionately pursue him, he wants us to be real. So as you sit here tonight, all the different scenarios and situations that you're in and you're facing, what is it that you want Jesus to do for you? You don't need to answer out loud, but I really would encourage you to ask the question. One, because he already knows. When we don't ask, we continue to be in that hamster wheel of just jammed up of how do we got to figure this out. If we're wrong, if, if we shouldn't be asking for the thing that we're asking for, he will gently redirect our steps and get us pointed in the right direction again. That's his desire. And so after Jesus deals with James and John, the rest of the disciples get involved. And they aren't happy. Again, in our effort to think of ourselves higher than we ought to, we defend the ten in their response. We think that they are indignant because James and John stooped so low to ask Jesus such a question. But here's the truth. They're jealous because they want the same thing, and now these two have gotten an unfair advantage. They all wanted to rule. They all wanted those high places of honor. And they were all eventually found out. Because as we read from Scripture, Jesus knows our heart. God knows our heart. He knows our heart even better than we know our heart. So I said, this is where the conversation kind of shifts, and this is where I kind of want to land for the rest of our time together tonight, because I think we really need to get this right. 
Earlier, I mentioned that there's a stark contrast between doing our own kingdom work and his kingdom work. Well, here it comes. First, Jesus responds with what earthly kingdoms look like. He answers the 12 as he has them brought together. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Here's what he's saying. As you look around you, as you look at, at the people around you and what they're doing and how they conduct themselves, the people who are in charge, they have the power. And they use it to make other people by force, if necessary, sometimes extreme levels of force, to do what they want them to do. This is a major problem, and it's a big contradiction to the way that Jesus calls us to live. Again, going back to, to James Edwards, commentator, he said it like this, which I think is so great. The desire for power and dominance focuses attention on self, and this kills love. For love by nature is focused on others. One thing that I've been fascinated about as I continue to study the scriptures and I'm on my own journey to know Jesus more is that everything seems to come back to two simple commands. Love God and love your neighbor. When we lord it over people, when we exercise our authority over people and treat them harshly and treat them badly because we have the power within us to do so, it kills love. It makes it impossible to love. So this is the earthly kingdom, and it's completely self-focused. So what is it compared to? That's the next part of Jesus' response. His follow-up statement says, not so with you. Um, that's really big on the screen because I've misread that for so many years. If you grew up in the church, you know this passage, you've heard it explained, you know the story, you know how it goes. But he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So like I said, this is really amazing. This is how I've read it over so many years. Maybe you have too. We read passages like this, and we give them our own, interpretation and say, it shouldn't be that way with us. We should be servants and slaves if we want to become great. And then most of us are content with it not being that way, and so we just continue on doing what we're doing. But that's not what it says. It says, not so with you. Right here, Jesus is making a clear distinction between earthly kingdoms, which are based on ruling and force and exercising of authority. And he's contrasting that with a heavenly kingdom, which is all about serving. He is saying that this is 
the way of the kingdom of heaven, we don't get to redefine it. This is going to be kind of redundant, but hopefully you're going to get what, what I'm saying here. If we are in the kingdom, we serve. We serve because we're part of the kingdom. By serving, we show that we are members of his kingdom. Are we getting the point? I come up with some more. We can decide whether we're going to follow that or not, but we don't get to redefine what the kingdom looks like. So the next part, unless we start thinking that Jesus is on some kind of power trip and just trying to get us to submit to him, like he's the one in charge and he's actually doing exactly what he's telling us not to do, he ends his teaching by starting with himself. Because Jesus never asks us to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. One of the key principles that I've heard over the years of great leaders, of strong leaders, is they don't ask people to do things if they're unwilling to do them themselves. Do them themselves. So he uses himself as an example. And he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This would be an entirely different study, but the Son of Man is a term that's derived from the book of Daniel. It's an interesting, a fascinating study if you want to get into it, but it's a term that Jesus used to describe himself regularly. He doesn't call himself the Messiah or things that, again, associate him with some political ruler going to set up his earthly kingdom. It's an entirely different meaning. So he's saying that even he did not come to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life as a ransom for many. Remember when we first started back in verse 33 and 34? that very descriptive detail of what was about to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Here it is again, full circle. This whole passage has bookends at the very beginning and at the end of what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. This is why he came. To give his life. To be betrayed. Mocked. Spit on. Flogged killed, and most importantly, to rise again. The word ransom, as I've found out here, is very important. If you're a really analytical or logical person like myself, then this word is really key in understanding why Jesus willingly did this for you and me. So, um, if we have any Greek students here tonight, I apologize. Because uh, I'm very beginning of learning this. But I thought we'd, we'd practice some Greek together. I thought it would be fun. Something for you to remember tonight. The Greek word here for ransom is, is lutron. And what it means is 
the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. The reason why I think it's kind of interesting to just focus on this word is because this word is only used two times in scripture. It's used here, and it's used in the parallel passage over in Matthew 20. And again, as being an analytical, logical, how does this all work? This, this word explains so much. There's two things about it. One, if you don't know Jesus, this is the condition that you're in. You are a slave, you're a prisoner of war, you're a condemned person. And you need to be set free. But this word also includes the concept of substitution, meaning we can't do it ourselves. You're a prisoner, you're in bondage, you can't set yourself free. Somebody else has to do it for you. And for me, understanding that all of the, the things that that word means, when it says that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, it takes, that's a very powerful sentence. Because again, when we truly understand who Jesus is, it radically changes the way that we relate to him and the other people around us. <laughs> so just because of the way that God works, I found myself reading Matthew 4 this morning. And the beginning of Matthew 4 is when uh, Jesus has just been baptized at the end of John chapter 3. And then the devil comes to him and takes him to the wilderness to tempt him and to test him. And one thing that stood out to me through all the different temptations is he starts off with, if you really are the son of God. And as I went over that passage, it really hit me that one of the things, one of the strongest ways that the devil tempts us is to get us to believe that Jesus isn't who he said he was. He's less than he said he was. And it's no surprise that that's one of the strongest ways that he tries to tempt us by getting to believe that, that Jesus is actually God come in human flesh. Because when we see Jesus for who he is, what he said, what he has done for us, it sets us free. It changes our lives. We're no longer in bondage to the power of sin and death. So he can't change that. But if he can get us to start thinking that we can give the words of Jesus our own interpretation, or if we can make Jesus less than who he actually said he was, if we can start to downplay or change or distort things, we get jammed up in all sorts of stuff. But when we come to him as a child, as he says, and believe him for who he says he is, and do the things that he's called us to do, it changes our lives and it sets us free. That's the last thing that Satan wants to happen. And so he tries to get us to doubt all the time. God's already taken the first step. He sent his son Jesus down to the earth 
And now he's calling us to know him and be known by him. So the last part of tonight, it's really up to you and up to me where to go from here. Because once we accept the fact that we don't get to redefine things that Jesus has done or has said or the way that God has set things up, we basically have a choice of are we in or are we out? And so what's our response tonight? First and foremost, are you part of the kingdom? Going back to the question at the beginning, do you know Jesus? Not have you heard about him? Do you think he's a good guy? Do you, whatever it is, are you part of the kingdom? And if not, it may be that God has been pursuing you. And tonight is the night that you're brought into his family. I know for a fact that there are many people here who would be more than willing to take the time and start that journey with you. But for those of us who are here tonight and have made that decision, my question is this. If you're part of the kingdom, what kind of member are you? I'll just be very open and honest with you. Preparing this message, I've had to do a lot of repenting. Because whether we think that we are in a leadership position or a position of authority, we all have a sphere of influence in our lives. And so the question is, what kingdom are we representing? Are we lording it over people in our positions of leadership and authority? Or are we serving? couple of the areas that come to mind in your work, your relationship with your employees, maybe it's your customers, in your job. Are you serving? Or are you punishing and exercising authority over people that you work with? For those of us who are married, let's go a little bit closer to home. In your marriage, And let's go even a little bit more closer to home. Not necessarily you, but if you asked your spouse the way that they answered, would they say that the way that you are leading in your sphere of influence that you have in a way that is exercising authority, looking down as in you're better than other people? Or would they say that the way that you're leading, the way that you're conducting yourself is, is true servanthood, that you are serving that you are willing to give up your life, your, your opinion or your position of power. Or the other one that was really tough for me, in your parenting. I only feel the freedom to ask this question because I've had to ask myself first, what kind of parent are you? 
I didn't put the last part of that quote from my son, but I heard about what he said. And that part of the rebuke wasn't so gentle because here's how it went. You really need to read this. Let's just hope all those things are true because sometimes dad says things and then doesn't do them. I've been convicted, you guys, because I have three kids. And anyone who's been in my home for more than five seconds knows that the way that I deal with my son is drastically different than the way that I deal with my daughters. And I don't stand up here and say that proudly because when I call it what it is, I'm not serving my son. When I deal with my son, I know I've got to correct his actions. I know I've got, to, there's got to be discipline. Like that is definitely important. But when I'm dealing with my son or when I'm dealing with my wife, I don't need to make them feel like less of a person. And if there's somebody here, if there's some of you here tonight, that if you're honest with yourself and that's you, I just want you to know you're not alone. But at the same time, that is not the way of the kingdom. That is the way that earthly kingdoms work. That is not what it means to lead. That's not what it means to lead your wife. That's not what it means to lead your children or to raise them up. Those of you who have raised kids know, as I'm still slowly finding out because I'm a slow learner, parenting is not a glorifying experience. My six-year-old is convinced that he is the parent and he is the smartest person in our household. In a couple of years, that actually might be true. But as we stand here today, that is not the case. And God has set things up in a way that I am his dad and he is my son. And I've been given a perfect example of what a dad is supposed to do for his son. And so maybe work is fine. Maybe your marriage is fine. Maybe even your parenting. Maybe for some of the younger people out there, what about how you deal with your parents? Are you gracious with them? Are you exercising your authority as being the parents over your kids and cutting off communication from, from their grandparents? Again, this isn't my platform. That's just not the way of Jesus. So if none of those things to relate to you, I just want you to think in your own head, whoever that person that really bugs you is, you know who they are. How do you treat them? The person who disagrees with you, the person who always 
has something to interject into your life? Do we treat them as if they're less of a human being than we are? Do we treat them as if they're there to serve us? Or do we treat them as if we're there to serve them? I realize that, that talking about some of these things probably brings up some like, not comfortable situations coming up. But here's a very powerful truth. When the way we live our lives reflects the heart and character of God, he's glorified. A lot of times you hear the terms, or if you, you listen to different pastors or different things, read different books, you talk about following the way of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus modeled and taught the way that we should live for us during his time on earth. So again, the only thing that we're left with is the question of, what do you really think about his way? What do I really think about his way? It's not up for debate whether like we can change it. But am I gonna continue to keep trying to build up my own kingdom, try to do things my own way? Or am I gonna be really committed to, to building up his kingdom, to, to following his way? Like my son, some of us say, as we read this, as we hear this, like, wow, that's, that's some amazing stuff. Like, I hope it's true. Or as I read in Proverbs this morning, are we taking hold of his words with all of our heart? Do we hold on to the words of Jesus? Are we so passionate about them that we know them, that they're just so part of an integral part of our lives that that's what we're committed to doing? So in the same way, my son's intention wasn't to just slap me around and be like, yep. It really was a gentle exhortation to do better. So I don't want tonight to be a thing that we walk away thinking that we've just been beat up or we've been pummeled. My encouragement is, as the body of Christ, let's live to know Jesus for who he is. Not who we think he should be, not who we want him to be, because honestly, when that's the case, Jesus ends up looking more like us. But let's encourage one another to follow him to be real in our pursuit of him, asking him for the things that are really on our heart, knowing that when we miss the mark, he will gently rebuke and correct us because that's who he is. So in closing, we all know this, but life is full of points in our life 
where the Holy Spirit brings something to our attention. The only reason that when I have opportunity to teach that I share the things that I do is I'm just trusting by faith that this is where somebody's at. And somewhere along the line tonight, the Holy Spirit has brought something to your attention. An area in your life that he needs to come in and gently redirect. So tonight we have an unbelievable opportunity to respond to what he has shown us. And so if that is you tonight, if there's anything whether it's through music, through our time of studying the word together, that God, through his Holy Spirit, has brought to your mind and attention, I would strongly urge you not to let this moment slip away. And walk away tonight knowing and hoping that after you leave, it'll just pass. That uncomfortable feeling of something's not right, something needs to change. We can all leave here tonight and go on building our own kingdom, building our own house. But the Bible tells us that unless he builds the house, it's not going to stand. So I'm going to invite the worship team up again. And I'm going to pray in a moment. But the last thing I want to say is tonight Jesus is calling us to follow him. Maybe for the first time, maybe just to continue following him, maybe to redirect our path so that we can start getting back in line. But he's calling each and every one of us in this room to follow him in one way or another. And so what is he calling you to do tonight? And how are we going to respond? We intentionally set up at the end of our services a time of response, and that's what it's for. The team here is going to sing, and if you want to respond by worshiping in song, then by all means do it. If you need to pray where you're at, if you need to go do something, Whatever it is, you need to talk to someone, you need to make something right that hasn't been right. This time is all about response. And so whatever that means for you, whatever God has been speaking to you tonight, this is the time that has been set apart specifically for you to respond and act on what he's shown us tonight. So... I'm going to pray. The team is going to do one more song. I just encourage all of us to respond to what God's shown us tonight. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, you've been showing me over the last several months that there really is only one person who's faithful, and that's you. I fail you every single day, several times a day. We all fail you. We say that we were faithful, that we want to be faithful, but we're not. You're the one who is faithfully pursuing us. 
And sometimes we just don't take time to listen for your voice, to hear what it is that you're calling us to do. But I'm thankful for your faithfulness, God. I'm thankful that you don't give up on us. And I'm thankful that you show us the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, that you call each one of us to be servants. That by serving one another, that's how we show that we love one another. Sky, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time you've given us tonight. And I just pray that as, as your church, as your bride, that we would day by day continually encourage one another to know you more for who you are and to follow you wherever you go. Just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.